Well, good morning. What a joy it is to be able to, to be here with you this morning. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to share God's word with you. Uh, love your pastor, Pastor Hobson, and the elders and staff here. Um, I've had a great relationship over these last few years, and I'm so encouraged uh, by what I see uh, God doing here among you at Pocosin. So uh, my first time to actually be a part of a worship service, and uh, it is a joy to be here. It's also good to have my uh, bride of almost 29 years, Allison, with me this morning. And so uh, looking forward to being able to share God's word with you. And uh, I think Pastor Hobson had a good idea. He wanted me to lead off the series because he can take it up from here. All right, so... <laughs> If it tanks, and this is your uh, first time with us this morning, it only gets better after this. Okay? All right, so I would invite you, if you will, to take your copy of God's Word and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew again. We've heard the Scripture already read once, but uh, because we often need to be reminded, don't we, or at least I do, of these primary truths, let's go to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28. And uh, we're just quickly going to read once again, verses 16 through 20. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. And now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth... Has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Just title this message this morning from Pocosin to the ends of the earth. Briefly, let's pray. Father, I just pray by your Holy Spirit that you would come and that we would, you would illuminate your word so that we can see wonderful things in your law. Awaken the affections of our heart so that we may love you more deeply, be more devoted to you, that you would open our ears that we might hear what the Spirit says to the church. We ask it in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen. Uh, last words are normally some of the most important words that we hear, especially if you have someone who is close to you, a, a loved one or a family member who has died. Those last words, you value, they are precious, you cherish them. Some guy said that I'll be fine as long as my last words aren't, hey guys, watch this. Well, when we come to our text this morning, we see the last words of Jesus. And these last words are precious. These last words are of primary importance to Christians because of what they mean. Often, this has historically been called the Great Commission. Unfortunately, for the evangelical church in the West, the Great Commission has become the Great Omission. No, it's not because we don't talk about it often. It's because often there is a gap between our hearing and our doing. How many ever experienced that gap in your own life? 
But listen to these statistics this morning. There are many statistics I could come and give you that would overwhelm you, but just a couple. Think about this, that 97% of churches last year in evangelical America did not win one convert to the Lord. Think about the fact that 47% of church attendees in America have never even heard of the Great Commission. Or if they've heard of it, they really don't know what it means. And then we have another issue with the rising generation called Generation Z that sees Christian mission as essentially tainted and hopeless because of its association with colonialism and imperialism. And after all, it's not our job to force conversion upon other cultures and upon other people. So we should just kind of keep our faith private and not actually express it in the public and certainly not try to express it in foreign places. And while this is certainly a major problem that we are encountering, I think there is another great obstacle that we're going to address this morning. And it is simply this, that often, especially in the evangelical West, that the Great Commission has been severed from the local church. In other words, the Great Commission has been co-opted by parachurch agencies, large parachurch agencies, and in many ways the church has handed over the responsibility of discipling the nations to these massive missions organizations that we see uh, that are popping up by the thousands all around America. And it's not that these missions organizations, parachurch organizations, don't have a role to play. I'm now a part of a parachurch organization, but I realize that our job is to work with the church in bringing fullness and flourishing and health to local churches around the world. So as we consider this problem of the Great Commission being severed from the local church, I want to remind you of what our theme is for this morning's message. It is that the local church is central and essential to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And there are many texts that we could have chosen this morning that would help us to see that principle. But I don't think that there's probably one that is more clear than this passage that you are probably very familiar with. In fact, if you've ever heard a sermon from this passage, raise your hand. Probably you could raise both hands and both, both feet and wiggle all your toes. You've heard this so many times. But my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit would just maybe illuminate an insight for us and help us to be confident as we go forward in becoming missionaries, not just to our community, but to the far-flung corners of the earth. And you have notes in your bulletin this morning, so I want to draw your attention to those as we look at these purposes, these reasons that the local church is central and essential to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I'll give them to you up front, and then we'll come back and walk through each one. So three reasons. Number one, because the local church has been given Christ's power. Secondly, because the local church has been given Christ's program. And thirdly, because the local church has been given Christ's promise. See, I'm a good Baptist because I alliterated all the points for you. So let's look at this first one, that the local church has been given Christ's power. 
I want you to go with me to verse 16. And I want us to pay close attention because really what tends to happen is that we abrogate the Great Commission when we often look at this passage because we start with verse 18 instead of starting with verse 16. But actually, verse 18, 19, and 20 are the product of what comes before actually in verses 16 and 17. And notice what the writer Matthew tells us here in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. It's interesting that Jesus, the, the risen Christ at this point, he has been buried and resurrected just before his ascension and he leads them. He could have led them anywhere and shared with them his final words, but he leads them and meets them in Galilee. Galilee, that northern position in Israel, which was primarily a Gentile area. And isn't it interesting that, that Jesus brings his disciples to give them this great commission to go to the ends of the earth in a place that needs to be evangelized, a great Gentile area like Galilee. And Jesus brings them to a mountain. And the mountain motif, we see this throughout the scripture, especially in the Old Testament. In that great second psalm that speaks of Christ, God says, I will set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Isaiah talks about the day is coming that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of all the mountains in the world and all the nations will flow to it. The house of the Lord Jesus himself called himself the temple of God in John chapter 2. So we see Jesus is fulfilling all of this Old Testament language which describes God's redemptive movement throughout history that has been culminated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice what happens here when Jesus brings the eleven to the mountain in verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And isn't this the rightful response of every believer who has seen Jesus Christ? Every believer who has encountered the resurrected Christ. There's a pattern that we see in the Gospels, especially after the resurrection of Christ, that everyone that Jesus encounters worships him. The women fell down and worshiped him when they realized that he had been raised from the dead and he spoke to them. Thomas worshiped him. When he realized and put his hands in the scars in the hands of Jesus. And so it is right that we who know Christ, that we who live for Christ would worship him. But what's interesting here in this passage is that before the great commission, that before Christ utters this command to his disciples and ultimately to the church, first his people worship him. Worship always precedes witness. In fact, worship compels witness. We see this throughout the Old Testament as well. How about Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died in Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah said he saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting upon a throne, and the, and the robe, his robe filled the temple. Isaiah saw the magnitude, the expanse of the glory of God, and he encountered him. And when he encountered him in that moment, he was so fearful because he realized who he was and who God was and standing as a sinful man in that holy perfection of who God is. And he says, I am ruined and I am undone. 
And here we have in this passage in Isaiah chapter 6, the angel, the cherubim taking, or the seraphim taking the coal from the altar, pressing it against the lips of Isaiah and cleansing him from his sin. And then the very next thing that happens in this account is that there is a voice from the altar that says, who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. In other words, the rightful response of everyone who has been redeemed by God's grace is simply to answer that question, who will go for us in the affirmative? Who I will go. I don't have the gifts. I don't have the talents. I don't have the ability. I don't have the resources. But isn't it good to know that God doesn't ask us for what we have before he calls us? He gives us what we need as we respond in faith to go. And I believe even this morning that there may be some in this congregation that God is squeezing your heart or by the end of the message today that God will squeeze your heart so that you can love what he loves. Because being a Christian means to be on mission. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But this is not the only place that we see worship compelling witness How about we move to the book of Acts and we see the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. And there as chapter 13 opens, we're told that the church in Antioch was fasting and worshiping. And in the middle of one of their church services, the Holy Spirit spoke in some form and said, Separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have called them to do. In other words, in the midst of worship, God spoke and the gospel was advanced. My friends, I want to tell you this morning that one of the reasons that we have a great lack of missionaries in our evangelical churches is because we see God as far too small. Our God is a big God. Our God is able to handle every challenge that, that presents us. Our God is mighty, He is sovereign, He is ruling over all powers, over everything in this world. And you know what? I've read the end of the book, I see that we win. Isn't that good news? And I believe that as we encounter God afresh and anew, and we encounter Him in His holiness, and we encounter what it means to know the resurrected Christ, then our natural response is simply to worship Him. For to know Christ is to worship Him. And to worship Him means not just an act of obeisance that we do before Him. It's not just an act that we do in the church. It's not just the lifting of our hands. It's not just the utterance of a catechism. It is actually a life that is lived in orientation with the will of our Master. In other words, it is a life that is aligned with God's priorities. It is a life that is aligned with where God is taking us. Each and every one of us have a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify God. And to glorify God means that we be fruitful according to John and Jesus, or according to Jesus in John 15 and 8. By this you will know my disciples because they will be fruitful, and that fruitfulness involves mission. God's design has always began, or God's design has always been to make His name known through a worshiping community. Think about this for a moment. Go back all the way to Genesis 12, and we have the call of Abram, Abraham. 
And remember what transpires before Abraham. There is the perfect garden, then Adam and Eve fall in the perfect garden, and then we have Cain that kills Abel, and then we have a world of evil that is unleashed in the earth, and then we have Noah who finds favor in God's eyes, but man's heart is continually wicked at all times, and so God sends the flood in judgment. God reiterates a covenant with Noah, but yet Noah is found unfaithful when he's drunk, and so God disperses the 70 nations at the Tower of Babel, and then Genesis 12 begins with a new man, and this is God's intention in calling Abram. It was not to call an individual, it was to call a people, because what is the promise that God gives Abraham? You shall leave your father and mother and your father's house and your kindred and go to the place that I will show you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing so that you can be a blessing to others. And in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So that promise to Abraham, that covenant to Abraham necessitates the fact that there is a progeny that is going to come from Abraham, a people that God is going to use to mediate his blessing, to mediate his glory to the ends of the earth. And we see this promise reiterated in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, where God is calling Israel to the mountain of Sinai to give them his law, to enter into that covenant with them. And he says that you will be for me a light to the Gentile nations, you will be for me a mediator, a kingdom of priests to your God. What does it mean to be a priest? It means a priest is one who mediates the divine blessings. In other words, it's not that God loved Israel more than all the other nations because he didn't. But God chose Israel with a specific purpose, which is to be the mediator of his blessing of salvation to the ends of the earth. But it came to a people and not just to an individual. Do we see this this morning? That the call of the Great Commission is not just about as an individual reaching my neighbor and sharing the gospel, but it is as a worshiping community that God calls us to be a light to the world. Now think about this. When God commanded this and when God called Abraham, that he called him to a land of Canaan. We know that today as Israel. That is a land that's about 30 miles, about 100 miles long and about 30 miles wide. Very, very small land. On the west was Egypt. On the east were the major powers of uh, Persia and Babylon. And the only way that these major world powers could do uh, business was to come together and cross in that land of Israel because it was located in the cradle of the world, in the center of the world. Why is it that God chose Canaan in the midst of those great world powers? It was so that the glories of the people that are expressing who God is and living in a way that reveals to the nations who God is so that their light might shine to all those Gentile nations that would converge to do business in the promised land. God's promise from the very beginning and God's design from the very beginning is that His name might be made known through a worshiping community. But I want you to notice something else here. Now, this is the most encouraging part of the whole Great Commission to me. I don't know if it is for you or not because you've probably never had this issue. But look at the last clause of verse 17. Do you see it? And they worshiped him, but some did what? They doubted. 
Well, I just feel right at home, don't you? (laughs) Now, I want you to imagine with me, if you will, here is the resurrected Christ that is standing before you. He's not a figment of your imagination. He is speaking to you. He is eating with you. We know already from the gospel accounts that Jesus previously had fixed breakfast for the disciples. He had eaten with them. He had spent 40 days with them. And here he is again leading them to this mountain. And there were some that worshipped him, but there were some that were still... <laughs> Actually, this word doubting might be a little confusing because in the Greek, it, it literally means hesitate. In other words, there were some that were hesitating. There were some that couldn't decide if this was really what they wanted to do. There were some that were holding back. They just weren't sure. I wonder how many of us this morning when we think about this great commission and we think about what it is that God has called us to do and who he has called us to be are just hesitating We're holding back. We've not yet gone all in because we're we're just maybe a little concerned or we're battling with fear. And I tell you this morning that the greatest joy in your life is when you pursue wholeheartedly those fearful moments. I remember when I was getting ready to transition after 27 years of pastoral ministry and and I'm in my early 50s. I know I don't look that old, but, uh, you know, have a stable job, I'm established, you know, have a good salary and all of those things. And then the Lord had been putting this in my heart for years about working with the global church. And I'm getting ready to make this transition and thinking I am going from stable salary and all of the other things that are associated with that job now to having to raise support and not knowing exactly what's going to lie ahead. And I have to tell you, I battle with fear. I battle with all kind of anxiety. But I'm so glad this morning that I didn't allow that to win, that by God's good grace, he enabled me to make the right decision. And I'm here this morning having the time of my life. So don't let hesitation keep you from pursuing God's will. Let us go all in for the sake of the great commission. You know, there's a passage that that's mentioned a story that's mentioned in the gospel of Luke chapter 9 where a young man comes and asks to follow Jesus and and Jesus says follow me the man says well my father died and I have to go back and bury him and Jesus utters these mysterious words let the dead bury their own dead but you follow me in other words your priority is not your family. Your priority is me and my mission. Now, I know this cuts against the grain of what we're taught in the culture and what we're taught in America and even in much of evangelicalism where we're taught that it is our desires that are the primary thing, that it is our will that is the primary thing, that God came to give us, you know, a good, healthy, prosperous life and wants us, you know, to be abundantly surpassing in everything instead of this idea of what Christian discipleship means and that we're called actually to be utterly devoted to our master and whatever his will is, we pursue. It's interesting that if you go back and look at the background of that particular story in Luke chapter 9, there was a process for Jews back in Jesus' day that when the body was buried, 
they had an initial burial ceremony, but that was not the end of the burial process. They waited until the body, the flesh, would actually rot away from the bones. And then it took about a year. About a year later, they would go and they would gather the leftover bones and they would place them in a little box called an ossuary. And that would be the permanent burial location, the bones and the ossuary of that person. And it was up to the children of the parents who had died to remain in that place. It was their family obligation to make sure that they were cared for, that their bones were placed up after a year and put in an ossuary box and then placed in the cemetery for perpetuity. But yet Jesus says, no, if I call you, your devotion is ultimately to me. Not that we can't abandon our families. That's not the call though in some cultures that might actually be required, but that ultimately God's call trumps every other call in life. And here is why this is important. Because being a Christian necessarily means that we are on mission. I want you to think about this for a minute. Christianity is different than every other religion. Because in Christianity, what it means to be a Christian necessarily involves being on mission. You can't be a Christian without being on mission. The idea that we would have to refrain from evangelizing the world because, or making disciples of the nations because of imperialism or because it's been tainted with colonialism would require that we just not be Christians anymore. To be a Christian means that we are on mission. It's interesting that in John 17, in that upper room discourse, Jesus prays to the Father, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And then the very next, next words that Jesus utters are missional words, that they might go and reach others. In other words, our faith is a missional faith. You can't separate the two. Now I want you to notice also here, we're talking about Christ's power. Notice his authority. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, how much authority? All? Am I reading the right translation? Some authority? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All power, all authority... If you look back at, at Matthew, and I saw, I think you guys are doing some kind of a study in Matthew maybe, that, that one of the themes of Matthew is God's sovereignty over everything. And so Matthew is at pains repeatedly to show how Christ is the sovereign one. And one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself was the Son of Man, that mysterious figure in Daniel chapter 7 that receives power and authority from the throne. And here Jesus wants us to know that he is that mysterious figure prophesied by Daniel. He is the one who receives all power and authority from the throne of God. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, All things have been handed over to me by the Father. Again in John chapter 3, verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has handed everything over to him. So Jesus has all authority and all power. And what is the result? The result is that we can be assured that the mission will succeed. 
Listen, if Jesus has all power and all authority, that means that nothing can stand in his way. That's why Jesus is able to say in that great Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel shall be preached in every nation and then the end will come. Why? How could Jesus say that? Because he knew he was going to the cross. He knew he was going to rise from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father and that the descent of the Spirit would begin the eschatological age of the ingathering of the nations. And so... This mission will be successful. I know we live in a day and age, especially if we're looking at the evangelical church in America, it can become very discouraging, isn't it? To watch it decline, to see churches that decline in attendance, want strong churches that are closing down, to see all of these things. It's very discouraging to see the uh, coarsening of the culture and a culture that has just gone crazy. It's discouraging to know that Christianity is not the favored kind of position anymore in our culture. But let us not for a moment think that just because we see the decline of Christianity in America, that it's somehow declining everywhere. Can I tell you that the church, that Jesus promised that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and the church is expanding all around the world? That God is doing great things all around the world? Did you know that in 1900, there were only 9 million Christians on the entire continent of Africa? By the year 2060, six of the world's 10 largest Christian countries will be located in sub-Saharan Africa. Think about this. There were only 3 million Christians in the 1980s accounted for in communist China. Today, there are close to 100 million, at last count, Christians in communist China. If I were to ask you this morning, where is the church growing the fastest in the world? You might not realize it is Iran, stronghold of political Islam. Yet around the world, we see God moving in incredible ways and building his church. Why? Because he has all authority. Because he has all power. He has not ceded his authority and power to anyone. So we can be confident as God calls us out of Pocosin Baptist Church to the places that he's called us, whether that's in your backyard, whether it's in your neighborhood, in our community, or wherever it is. We can be assured because we've seen the end picture. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. We see this amazing picture of a group that no man can number. Multitudes. John the Revelator tells us that are standing before the throne of God and their robes are washed in white and they have palm branches and they are worshiping and praising the Lord. They are those from every nation and kindred and tribe and creed. Those who have been purchased by the Lamb. That is the end of the story. In fact, did you know this morning that there are those that are located before the throne in Revelation 7 and 9 that the gospel has not reached yet? But the end of the story is that they will stand before the throne. And do you know what means God is going to use to reach them so that they can stand before the throne? He's going to use churches like Pocosin Baptist Church. All authority has been given to Christ. But look at Matthew chapter 18. 
this authority that has been given to Christ has actually been delegated to the local church. We don't have time to do a study on these five verses, verses 15 through 20, but let me sum it up for you really quickly. That here, Jesus gives the apostles and ultimately to the entirety of the church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, what Christ is saying, I give the local church authority to determine who's in and who's out of the kingdom. Therefore, the local church is central and essential to the Great Commission. But secondly, not only has Christ given church His power, He has given to the local church His program. Notice verse 18. Or verse 19, I'm sorry. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This word go, if we look at the, the Greek grammatical structure, it literally says, and as you are going, the idea here is that Jesus is making an assumption that we will go. That it will take that in the going we will make disciples, but that we will be in motion. I know as serving as a pastor for so many years, one of the most difficult things to do is to get a church in motion. Just to kind of get us off the snide and to get us involved in serving somehow and somewhere. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever noticed how much easier it is to guide someone who is already moving rather than trying to push somebody who, who has their feet planted in the ground? How many's ever noticed that? Right? I mean, it's much easier if we're just already in motion for the Spirit to guide us and to lead us rather than it is for us to remain entrenched and our own negative attitudes, sometimes our toxic church atmospheres. It's no wonder that we have so many churches closing because we're not in motion. I love what the Prince of Preachers Spurgeon had to say. He said that we are either missionaries or we are imposters. As you are going... The assumption is that you will go. And as we are going, what is Christ's program? To make disciples. Let me ask you, let, let's do a quick Bible study here. Do you see the word decisions in this passage? We don't see the word decisions, but yet that tends to be what the evangelical church has kind of locked on. This idea, well, Christ has called us to go and make decisions. So we've seen thousands of people make decisions for Christ in Africa. One of the things that we've noticed as we work in Africa and places like that is that there has been a great amount of evangelization that has taken place in Africa and praise God for that. But the church in Africa is a mile wide and an inch deep. One African pastor said that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in Africa is that, the, is that the Christian goes to the witch doctor at night. So there is still much work to be done in discipling. 
And this is the key, that Jesus doesn't call us to manipulate people's emotions. He doesn't call us to go out and make decisions so that we could put it on a decision card so we could trumpet our efforts maybe to the association or to the Southern Baptist Convention or to the missions board. But he calls us to make disciples. And how many know making disciples is messy? But I want you to notice something else here, that where are disciples made? Jesus tells us how disciples are made here in the program, doesn't he? He says, baptizing them in the Trinitarian formula and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Now, where does baptism and teaching take place? It takes place in the local church. Parachurch organizations may teach, but the locus of the teaching ministry Jesus has authorized the church to do. Jesus has authorized the church to be the place where the sacraments like baptism are celebrated. So ultimately the Great Commission really is what? If we're going to make disciples, which is at the core of what the Great Commission is, literally it means that the Great Commission is about planting, establishing, and seeing local churches flourish all around the world. This means that we need to rethink our paradigm when it comes to missions, don't we? Because so often much of our missionary effort is not involved in planting the gospel in a place for perpetuity. Much of our effort is like the Air Force, right? What does the Air Force do? It goes in and drops bombs, right? Just does a flyover. All right. God doesn't call us to be the Christian Air Force. He calls us to be the Christian Marines. What do Marines do? They go in as the invasion force and build a beachhead. And that's what the local church does. The local church is not the Air Force that merely flies over an unreached people group. The local church are the Marines that goes in and establishes a beachhead by doing the hard work of planting the church and watering it and seeing baptism and teaching take place so that the gospel of Jesus Christ grows in foreign roots so that it can flourish and reach even more of, of those who don't know our Savior. Make disciples through the establishment of local churches. But notice the scope. Jesus says, in all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Did you know today that there are over 6,000 unreached people groups that have never had an adequate witness, the gospel of Jesus Christ? That makes up about 42% of the world's population. Did you know that 80% of Muslims will never in their life ever even meet a Christian. While we praise God for all the good work that's been done with Great Commission work, we praise God for all of the wonderful churches that have been planted. We praise God for the way the gospel is accelerating around the world. Yet there is much work to do. It is not time to polish our armor. It is not time to pat ourselves on the back as if we have done a good job. It is time for us to press in and to take this commission more seriously than we ever have before. It is time for us to act as if we are in a battle. We are on a battleship and not a cruise ship. How many know the difference? 
Unfortunately, far too many Christians think the church is a cruise ship rather than a battleship. But God is calling us this morning to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. 6,000 unreached people groups. Whenever I've talked about missions previously, inevitably there's always several people who come and say, well, pastor, I believe in that, but shouldn't we reach people in our own community who have needs as if we can't chew gum and walk at the same time? Absolutely, we should reach those in our own neighborhoods. And isn't that what Jesus said in Acts 1.8? After that, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be witnesses unto me. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But I want you to notice what Jesus said. He didn't say Jerusalem or Samaria or the uttermost parts of the earth. He said Jerusalem and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. It's not either or. It's both and. We can reach people in our own backyard. We can plant churches here in the Hampton Roads area. We can plant churches in Virginia. We can plant churches in the United States. And Lord knows we need good gospel preaching, gospel-based churches. But that does not resolve us or absolve us of the responsibility to plant the gospel in other lands as well. We can do both. And here's what I know. As a pastor, I always remember this. Right? Well, we need resources to do that. Right? That's the first question we usually ask is, how much will it cost? We're starting with the wrong question. It's not ever, how much will it cost? The first question we should always be asking is, is this God's will? Because if it's God's will, He'll provide the resources. But many of us and many churches and many, many leadership teams get the cart before the horse, and we never step out because we say it's going to be too expensive. Well, anything that we do for Christ is going to be expensive. And this is where faith comes in, doesn't it? The faith to believe God, that He can do something significant through us. And here's what I know, that if God has put it on your heart, that if God has reoriented your heart around His mission so that you feel with His pathos, if you feel His heartbeat and you have a passion to make His name known among the nations, do you think that's by accident? No, it's because God is awakening you to a call. And because He's awakening you to a call, He's already provided the resources for you to fulfill that call. Now you just have to go and locate them. But again, this goes back, isn't it, to the, to the point that God is sovereign over all, even over all resources. And finally, number three, and I'm done. We're given, the local church has given Christ's power. We're given Christ's program. And ultimately, we're given Christ's promise. Look at verse 20. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, everybody say behold. I am with you even to the end of the age. How in the world could Christ say that because he was getting ready to ascend to the Father? Christ is in heaven where he lives to ever make intercession for his people. So what did Jesus mean by saying, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth? Well, just a few weeks before in, in the last night of Jesus' life in the upper room discourse, he addressed that concern. And he said, it's better for you that I go away. Because if I don't go away 
the comforter, the paraclete, will not come. But if I go away, he will come, and he will guide you into all truth. He will teach you everything that you need to know. He will convict and convince and reprove the world. What did Jesus mean that it was better for him to go away? It simply meant not that it was, that was the best case scenario. It's not that Jesus was going away that was good. It's what Jesus accomplished that was good. The reason that he was going away is because he had accomplished everything the Father had sent him to do. And the confirmation that Jesus had accomplished everything the Father had sent him to do was seen on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit descended and Peter stood up among the leaven and said, This is that which was prophesied by Joel that in the last days, essentially what Joel is saying, that there would be an ingathering of nations. He echoes all the Old Testament prophets that speak of that end time when the Messiah comes. That when God redeems, it will not just be a redemption for Israel, but it will be a redemption for all the nations. So therefore, Jesus said, it is good that I go away, because if I go away, it means I have accomplished what the Father sent me to do so that the Spirit could come, so that the age could be characterized, that the Spirit descends in as an age of great evangelism and discipleship. I am with you always through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that empowers us, the Spirit that illuminates God's Word to us, the Spirit that emboldens us to take good gospel risks, to have a great ambition for the glory of God and for His name to be made known among the nations. This morning I want to once again remind you that when we come together as the people of God, as this worshiping community, we come together as individuals. But we are together the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones. God has called you, yes, individually to be a lighthouse. But he's called us to come together so that we as a people might be a light in relating to one another so that we might provoke the nations to jealousy. Have you ever thought about how easy it would be to serve the Lord by yourself? I have. I mean, I wouldn't have to deal with people's hang-ups. I wouldn't have to forgive people. I mean, I could forgive myself easy. How about you? I'm patient with myself. I mean, I enjoy all my, you know, little problems and issues that I have. They aren't a big deal to me. They don't offend me because I'm used to them. It's only when I get in a worshiping community that I have to rub up against people who rub me the wrong way, whom I have to learn to be patient with, whom I have to learn to forgive. This is why we need the church, because we can't grow individually. And I know there are many people trying to do this whole Lone Ranger Christian thing, and it won't work. We can't become the kind of fruitful Christians that God desires and designs for us to be without the church. And we can't fulfill God's mission if we're not all making this our primary importance. We are missionaries. I close with this quote again from Spurgeon. Perhaps you've heard this. He says, someone asked, will the heathen who have never heard the gospel be saved? It is more a question with me of whether we who have the gospel and fail to give it to those who have not can be saved. Powerful words. This morning, again, I want to draw your attention to the one who calls. 
Let's encounter His grace, His redemption, His mercy again in a fresh and a new way so that we can be captivated by His glory. That the glory for His name might be the motivation that compels us to witness to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.